Morning. Jesus is presented at the temple. Let's just put this in context um, with Luke 2, because I know we've done a bit of flipping uh, backwards and forwards uh, with the lectionary, the way it's fallen. So chapter 2 starts with the story of the birth of Jesus, which we celebrated at Christmas, you know, the familiar story that includes angels and shepherds. Uh, And then it moves um, to this passage where Jesus is presented in the temple. Uh, And then it moves on to his return to Nazareth. And it concludes with the story of Jesus' visit to to the temple at the age of 12, which Ali spoke about a week or so ago. Uh, and, and there's a statement about his growth, uh, and it talks a bit about his infancy. So that's kind of the order that things are, are in in Luke 2. So um, let's look at the first bit of our reading uh, in verse 22. If you don't have it open, then you might want to do that. Um, it says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So um, Jewish families went through several ceremonies, some you will have heard of, some you may not have done. And uh, one of those was quite soon after the baby's birth. There was circumcision. Every Jewish boy was circumcised and named on the eighth day after his birth. And that's um, written about in Leviticus 12 and Luke 1. Circumcision symbolizes the Jews' separation from the Gentiles and their unique relationship with God. Next comes the redemption of the firstborn. The firstborn son was presented to God one month after birth. Exodus 13 tells us about that, and in Numbers 18. And that's what we have here in Luke 2. The ceremony included buying back or redeeming the child through an offering. And this acknowledged that the child belonged to God and that God had the power to give life. Uh, And then next comes the purification of the mother. Until 40 days after birth of a son and 80 days after the birth of a daughter, the mother was considered ceremonially unclean and wasn't allowed to enter the temple. Can you imagine that now? At the end of her time of separation, the parents were to bring a lamb for a burnt offering and a dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. The priest would sacrifice these offerings and declare the mother clean. So she had to go through that before she could come back into the temple after having a baby. At the presentation in the temple, Mary and Joseph made the offering of the poor. So they made the offering of two pigeons instead of the lamb, which was the offering of the better off. So they probably didn't have very much money, and that's the offering that they um, chose to, to bring. And there was provision in the law, in the Jewish law, for them to do that. Um, if you can't afford a lamb, you're allowed to sacrifice two turtle doves or two pigeons. And that says that in Leviticus 12. Uh, so in our minds, our modern minds, that purification 
Seems a bit of a, an odd idea, really. But it was part of their identity. It was part of the Jewish identity. Um, and that identified them as being Jewish people and, at that point, chosen by God. And Jesus was God's son, but his family carried out these ceremonies. They went through all those processes, mapping out the journey of life, if you like, much the same as we do today with um, baptisms, marriages, funerals in our church, or hatch, match, and dispatch, as some people call it. But that's the kind of process. Jesus wasn't born above the law, but he came to fulfill it. Though Jesus was to set people free from their obligation to the Jewish laws, he himself fulfilled its requirements. He went through that process. Galatians 4, Paul says, he was born of a woman, born under law. He was circumcised. His mother went through a ceremony of purification and he was consecrated to God. Mary and Joseph came to present Jesus to God, demonstrating their promises, their their faith in God's promises. So the law of Moses was God's plan in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, for the salvation of all people, Jesus was God's plan. But Jesus had his roots firmly planted in God's law. As he later explains in Matthew 5, verse 17, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So let's go on to verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God, and he said... And then he goes on to say those amazing words. So Simeon, who was he? Well, in my infinite wisdom, I had a little look round, did some research, and I couldn't figure out who he was. I just kept getting all these tribes of Israel. So I ring up Ali. She was really helpful. Who was Simeon? Ali, I can't find any much information about Simeon. So she told me exactly what it says here. Well, oh, that's pure genius. I could have read that for myself. And then she said, I'll just ask Steve. He sat next to me on the sofa, which did make me laugh and made me feel a bit less silly, asking the question to begin with. But let's have a look at Simeon. Simeon was a man who spent his life worshipping in the temple. We're told that he was a godly man filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Ali said that this was a rare thing at the time. Simeon was full of the Holy Spirit, And it was the Holy Spirit who revealed to him not only who Jesus was, but what he would go on to do. And then he goes on to speak the words a little bit later on, which we know as the Nunc Dimittis. I'm sure that most of you will have heard of that. Uh, And the words um, that go on are those words that we use 
in some of our services today. So the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon who Jesus was and what he would go on to do, more importantly. So how did his parents respond? They knew Jesus was special because they'd been through his birth and they knew from that that he was special. They didn't quite know um, to the extent that that would go on to be, but they knew he was special. They had no idea what was ahead, and especially Mary. I feel quite sort of sad for Mary in some ways because if that point, I think if she knew the pain she would go through, I think she would just not have imagined what it could have been like for her. But actually, Simeon foretells that in the words that he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And then there was Anna. Uh, And that's the other person who gives testimony to Jesus. She was a prophetess. Luke doesn't tell us what she says, and we know that she fasts, she prays for the redemption of Jerusalem, uh, and Anna's description picks up the anticipation of the disruption, and her constant state of fasting identifies her as one in a state of mourning, but not for her husband, but for Israel. So she had been in and around the temple, both of these people had been in and around the temple. That was their focus. They were there every day praying, searching out what God was saying and um, praying for Israel in Anna's case and um, praying and searching and looking for God. They were wise people. So what did Jesus' parents do? Verse 33, we read, And his father... And his mother marveled at what was said about him. Incredible. So they listened to what was said about him and they marveled it. They didn't ignore it. They didn't write it off. They marveled at what was being said. Now, I had a little bit of an experience of that with our own boys. Um, We had three boys. And some of my parents at school tell me I'm a very brave person for having three boys. There they are. They're about six, four, and two at that point. And it was a, a challenge being a mum to three boys because you had to have an awful lot of energy. And you had to be very firm. And at that point, I was exhausted. Some of you will appreciate that. The total exhaustion of, of having children and running around after them and keeping them in order and teaching them well and parenting well, all of that. It's absolutely exhausting. But um, uh, we met in small groups to study the Bible at that point, and a friend of mine, Penny, who was a stage above me, whose boys were older than me, who also had three boys, and uh, she, she came to pray and, and meet and read the Bible at a group one night, and she said to me after really praying and thinking and reflecting. She said, you've got two pastors, an evangelist, one evangelist in your boys. I was like, oh, yeah, right, okay, thanks. Um, That's really exciting, but right now it's really difficult. But actually what she said is true. We do. We have two pastors and an evangelist in our boys, um, and they're very much 
following that route in what they do um, and, and their walk of faith today. So that was a great thing for me to be encouraged by and to hear at that point when I really needed to hear it. And uh, Mary and Joseph were kind of in a similar uh, place and they were really marvelling at what was said. And how easy is it us for us to, to kind of not listen and not really wait for promises to be fulfilled to us and not really kind of wait on God. We get impatient, don't we? And why aren't you doing this, God? Why aren't you doing that, God? And, you know, I'm praying for this. I'm praying for that. And I can't see your answering. And um, we went on a, a, a plant, a church plant, um, for a church in Sunbury. And we know, we were told, uh, there was a group of us that went there, the church was um, in danger of being closed down because it was dying. Um, people weren't um, going there anymore. So we went as a big team, asked by the bishop to go and um, be part of that church and to bring some life back into it with um, uh, children and older people. And um, a real raft of us went. And, I mean, the church is, is, is very much thriving today, as a result of that, and it could have been a really different story, but one of the first things we heard when we arrived was the faithfulness and prayer of the old church warden there. I can't remember her name now, but she prayed for years and years for that church to have life in it, and just before we went um, and planted into that church and, and brought that life, she died. She didn't get to see it but she knew and had faith that God would do that. And he certainly did. So back to the the passage. We've got two older, wiser wiser people who recognize Jesus and speak out. And one thing that struck me as I was reading this was the intergenerational feel to it. It's easy, isn't it, to write off the different generations in church? It's because it's only the generation that we're in that counts. It's only when our needs are being met. We don't kind of think about um, the children, the older people, the middle-aged people, the people. It's the generation that, that we are in that counts. So we like to stick to what we know and to be having things in church that we are familiar with. We don't kind of encompass the intergenerational feel that a church congregation and a church family should have. Um, in this church... The older generation here. You can see a picture there of how the church used to be and, and how it is now. What a difference. And it was a result of those um, people in the generation that were before me um, um, uh, who prayed and worshipped here and longed to see the church rebuilt and went about doing that. And they fulfilled that. We would not be here today if it wasn't for the hard work, perseverance, prayer and tenacity of those people that went before us, who are some of them are still here. And do talk to them about that. That's an amazing thing and we can testify to that. We need to value each other in our faith to build each other up. We really do. It's important. That's what makes family. That's what makes us God's family. We need to value our older generation and really spend time with them 
talking to them, being around them, learning from them, as Jesus' parents did from Anna and Simeon. I have a deputy head at school who is a real ideas man. Uh, He has a lot of energy. He's a little bit like Tigger. And to be honest, he can be a bit annoying. But he was in the office with me the other day, and I said to him, well, it's okay for you, Brian. I don't have the energy that I used to have to keep going and to to doing some of these things, because it's always about targets and achievements and all that kind of stuff. And he said, he looked at me and he said, no, but what you have, you might not have the energy now, but what you have is wisdom, and that should be valued. And that really spoke to me. Yeah, wisdom you get with age, but to pass it on, speak, learn from each other. So it's two lifetime faithful, prayerful, older people who recognise Jesus and what he'd come to do. So in this, we have the two older people who are full of wisdom. We have Joseph and Mary, who are parents. And then we have Jesus coming in behind. So that's a real challenge to us to really nurture and value in much the same way and respect um, how Mary and Joseph respected Simeon and Anna and what they said and, and Jesus as he grew and how he viewed and respected the generation that was before him as well. So I want to finish with a couple of questions just to make us think. You might want to retweak those questions. So if you're older, when was the last time you asked a child what they'd learn in their Sunday morning groups? When was the last time you found out what story they'd been listening to that morning? Very often it's easy, isn't it, just to go into coffee and just forget they're there because they're a little bit irritating because they're running around and making a lot of noise, aren't they, most of the time. But they have been in groups learning from um, people who have been teaching them what's in the Bible. You know, families, when was the last time you invited an older person to share a meal with you? or your family. And younger people, when was the last time you spent time asking an older person how church was for them as they grew up? It's a very different place now to maybe when they grew, came in and through the church. And those questions are there not to, to kind of point the finger, but just to make us think about how we view the intergenerations in our church because sometimes it's really easy to write off older or younger or middle, wherever you are in that phase and age and stage of life. But when we come together and we really truly listen and value experience and we listen and value the little children with their energy and what their passion and their excitement about life, and parents with families who are tired, you know, the older people, maybe you can offer to babysit. I don't know. But to think about how together, intergenerationally, we are one church family. And let's just 
finish with a verse in Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen.